That was the opening music to Moonraker, the 1979 James Bond movie starring Roger Moore. And uh, this is the fourth Bond movie that we have watched for this Bond festival. And you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the internet at www.classicmoviereviews.net and on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash classicmoviereviews. And I'm Matt Johnson coming to you from rainy north bend and this is bob johnson in los angeles welcoming everybody back to classic movie reviews and moonraker from 1979 <laughs> the the height of the james bond roger moore movies yeah absolutely it, 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 the whole the whole thing peaked peaked at <laughs> moonraker yeah it's all downhill after this <laughs> this this film came out in june of 1979 I don't think I saw it when it first came out because uh, of scheduling and all that I had going on, but I did see it within six months of its release. It truly is a blend of Bond, science fiction, and fantasy. And superhero movies. And all wrapped into one that takes place in just a little over two hours. Yeah, they pack a lot into two hours, man. It's like, it feels like a couple different movies in one. You know, it, it... I, I went through the list of all the Bond movies. There's no way they've even ever come close to losing money on any of these films. This one, in, uh, in adjusted dollars, is now grossing up to close to $600 million if you adjust it to current values. I mean, they, they, these will be made for the next 100 years if they keep having return like that. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, this was I. I was tell, I was saying before we got started that I feel like this is the peak of 1970s sci-fi. You know, it, it kind of falls into the realm of like uh, Logan's Run and and Westworld and and it's it has some of the same feel to it as as those movies in the set designs and um, some of the special effects. But it's it's just like they've perfected all of that and and it all came together in, in Moonraker for me. No kidding. And, and, and shortly there was a transition in 1979 to a more graphic kind of science fiction movie because that was the year Alien came out. Yeah, this is definitely the tail end of that 70s sci-fi aesthetic. And then we start getting into things like Alien and Blade Runner and Empire Strikes Back. And they have a very different feel than, than these uh, movies from the 70s. Oh, you remember that movie... I, I really like this movie too, called Looker. Oh, where that guy, yes, with with uh, Albert Finney. Albert Finney and, and uh, this weapon. I don't remember. We went to see that in Seattle. Yeah, the weapon where uh, he you, you flashes a light and it makes you like forget uh, what, what what happened and it kind of puts you into like a stupor. And yeah, that was a. That, that was, was kind of a blend of 70s and 80s sci-fi, but it, it, that's another one that we should take a look at. 
I'd forgotten about that one, yeah. He didn't make too many science fiction movies. So, well, this one is the the 11th of the Bond films and Roger Moore's fourth. And our director, it's the first time he directed one of these films. He did two other Bond films. He did, uh, oh no, this was not the first one he did. This was the third and final film that he directed. He did uh, You Only Live Twice, and then he did The Spy Who Loved Me, and then Moonraker. So yes, this was his last film. And uh, he made about, he he directed about 40 films. And one of my favorites that he did from 1966 with Michael Caine is Alfie. Oh yeah, I've heard, I haven't seen that one. It's a really, really in-depth look at a guy uh, that, that you learn more about than you might ever care to learn about. It's a good movie. <laughs> Alfie, 1966. But uh, then yeah, uh, after this, well, I was going to say after this film, then the next, I think, five films, four or five films were all directed by John Glenn, hmm. who did the editing for this one. So they must have liked what he did. Yeah. Yeah, it was, this was well edited for sure. And I thought it was well directed too. Uh, and Roger Moore is just perfect as as Bond in this <laughs> he's, movie. He's got more one-liners. <laughs> he does, and, and I love that he sometimes he just cocks an eyebrow, kind of like I don't know. He, he's sort of like surprised, and then yet at not at not surprised at the same time. It's kind of like like when he walks into that that lair in the Amazon, and then all these women come out of these different areas around this pool of water that's in the middle. And, and he just yes. kind of gets this look on his face like, okay, party time. <laughs> he, you know, I didn't count them, but he's, he did that at least a half a dozen times in the film. There'll oh, be totally. a new There'll be a new situation, and he gives it a look like, oh, I can handle this. Yeah. It doesn't seem to matter what or where. Yeah, he's just like ready to go. And, you know, he's 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 battling... Uh, kendo fighters in a glass shop in Italy. He's battling a boa constrictor in a in an underground lair in the Amazon. He's racing through Venice on a on a on a boat that that that, that it's what is it one of those uh, gondolas, gondolas that has a motor yeah. in it that yes. turns into like a car or like a hovercraft. It's just it's just so crazy. He goes through the biggest square in Venice, packed with people. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed oh. so hard when he was driving through that square and then the look on the pedestrians and the bystanders' faces and the waiter is like pouring wine, but then... <laughs> even, the even the dog, there was even a dog yeah. that gave him a look. <laughs> uh, don't Let's not forget either that he uh, went out of an airplane without a parachute and yeah, then catches I mean, up and then Jaws comes flying over to greet him. And then there's the one where he's being chased in the Amazon with a boat that he then just happens to have a uh, one of those flying, what do you call it? Uh, like a glider. Like glider, a hang, yeah, glider, hang glider. glider. There's that. I mean, <laughs> I mean, they dialed it up to an 11 in this movie. They're, the gadgets are so out of control and so ridiculous. And, and, you know, we've got a laser space battle at the end. And, and I know. And 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 you know, how many space shuttles do they have? They've got you know they've got six that Drax has built, and then the Americans send one up. And I felt like they had more on standby just in case they needed them. You know, yeah. it's definitely like it's definitely like some unspecified future time when they have the technology to build this giant spaceship, and uh, no space station where they're gonna, you know, have like it's like a Noah's Ark kind of a thing, but in an evil way because Drax is. 
He's he's probably one of the most villainous Bond characters in my mind because he he wants to commit genocide against the entire human race. How much worse can you get? What exactly are you up to here, Drax? And why the orchids? The curse of a civilization. It was neither war nor pestilence that wiped out the race who built the great city lying around us. It was their reverence for this lovely flower. Because long-term exposure to its pollen caused relative. Correct, Mr. Bond. As you discovered, I have improved upon sterility. Those same seeds now yield death. Not, of course, to animals or plant life. One must preserve the balance of nature. I know. And, and, and not only that, but he's hand-selected all of those couples that would go live on the space station and have children so they could repopulate the Earth with the Drax-formulated people. I mean, the yeah, guy that, is... That speech was, that he gives on the oh. space station at the end, that was... <laughs> The thing about the movie, though, is like that—that that speech is chilling. It—it's like there, it, this movie alternates between just ridiculous stuff, like you know, jumping out of the plane without a parachute and the hang glider over the waterfall. But then you get like these speeches on the space station. It's like, well, that's terrifying. The guy is like absolutely insane. First, there was a dream. Now there is reality. Here, in the untainted cradle of the heavens will be created a new super race, a race of perfect physical specimens. You have been selected as its progenitors. Like gods, your offspring will return to Earth and shape it in their image. You have all served in humble capacities in my terrestrial empire. Your seed, like yourselves, will pay deference to the ultimate dynasty which I alone have created. From their first day on Earth, they will be able to look up and know that there is law and order in the heavens. Well, you know, if this were done as a straight drama, it would be an entirely different movie. Because oh, yeah. the whole premise of it is, like you say, the genocide of an entire world population. By one man. The reason I love this movie so much is that it does. It is kind of tongue in cheek, but then there's this undercurrent of, 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 of scary sci-fi, dystopia, world-ending kind of stuff going on, uh, which, which is kind of funny to funny to think about in a movie that has all this crazy craziness going on. I mean, that opening scene. I remember seeing this in the theater, and I was like, my jaw dropped when they did that scene jumping out of the plane without parachutes and bond is like flying through the air and it really looks like that's Roger Moore. I, I mean, know. the body doubles are so good. Yeah. I noticed that too. And when he's fighting the, uh, the fight in the, uh, expensive jewel, uh, museum with all that glassware that looks like Roger Moore the whole time. Yeah. The, the stunt, the stunt double. I don't know if that time, if at that time they had the, yeah, the uh, ability to modify a person's appearance on film, I doubt it. No, no way, no way. No. No. But it's got, even the opening, you know, here the space shuttle is flying along, and so Drax is short one of the space shuttles that wasn't functioning right, so he just hijacks the one that's on the back of the plane that's going to the United Kingdom. Yeah, which is Because he's so... short one. 
you can't you can't you definitely have to suspend disbelief in this movie because why would you why would you put a space shuttle on the back of a 747 that is full of fuel like why would you not just empty out the fuel tanks before you fly it across the atlantic but no the the space shuttle is like totally fueled and ready to take off off the back of the 747 (laughs) another scene near the beginning when bond enters onto the scene and, and is on the trail of what's going on and he ends up going out to china lake where there's an enormous amount of military facilities and hardware run by both the Air Force and, and Navy. And Drax has his entire manufacturing facility out there in the, in the middle of the high desert. But off in the distance, you see this beautiful French countryside place yeah. that he's built out in the middle of the desert. And then we switch to that, which is actually in France. And it's like, wow, this is quite a environmental uh, challenge and, and accomplishment to put that together. Well, you think about all the water it would take to to build that. And oh, the matte paintings in this movie are really good because you know that that's definitely a matte painting of because you, you you're you're up in an aerial view and then you look out and you see like this, pl- you know, lush green area with this giant French style mansion, and uh, then and then he's as he's as he's like sneaking around the mansion at night. And Dr. Is it Dr. No, it wasn't Dr. Goodhead. It was the pilot, the airplane pilot. It was the, yeah, it was the helicopter pilot. The helicopter pilot was helping him find out where the safe was. And then he opens the safe and takes some pictures with this tiny little camera. And right on the front of the camera, over the lens, it says 007. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He's got a personalized spy camera. (laughs) <laughs> he's probably got that 007 even on his uh, automatic weapons. Yeah. Drax's personal pilot is Corinne. Her character's name is Corinne Dufour. And her first name in real life is Corinne Clary. Clary, I think it is. But, you know, Drax doesn't suffer long for the, the misfortune. The, uh, bad performance of his subordinates well and that's that's another example like the that scene where the dogs chase her down in the forest is another like terrifying scene and the music the music changes and it becomes almost like this horror this horror scene you called for me mr drax you were with bond last night in my study no i you showed him the safe i didn't i'm terminating your employment you will leave immediately and she's you know you know she's not going to make it and these dogs are chasing her and yeah that was that was really well done so again this movie kind of like vacillates between 
ridiculousness and like scary stuff that's going on. I also, before we started recording, I mentioned that I have to, I have to take my mind back to 1979 to get into the, uh, the uh, background and, and environment of this film and some of the names that the characters have and some of the characters, how they're, <laughs> yeah. how they're uh, portrayed. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I, Michael Lonsdale plays Drax. And and he's one of my favorite actors. He just in in the day of the jackal, he was so good as the inspector that tra- Claude. He was Claude Lebel in mm-hmm. Day of the Jackal, tracking down this killer assassin. And then in the Bride Wore Black, he's one of the victims of the bride. Oh gosh, I I wish we could watch that movie. I, we got to find that movie. We will. It'll it'll show up somehow. Yeah. It will. I I'm hoping that. Uh, it will show up on one of the new streaming services that has some of the other films that we've watched. Like Jim and Jules is on that. Yeah, screen. like H- HBO H- Max or something. Yeah, HBO Max, something like that. But he's so he's done so many different characters. He's even a uh, sort of a, a secretive spy that paints small models in Ronan, the, Roger De, the Robert De Niro film from 1990. Oh, really? He's, oh yeah, my gosh! Way into that film, De Niro gets injured and shot, and they take him to Michael Lansdale's lair, and Lansdale is painting all these miniatures, and is is kind of a philosophical person. You're never quite sure what his role is, but he's and and he's also in the same kind of role in Munich. The man, the man I don't know how many films he did, but he was working all yeah, the time. He was, I mean, he was awesome. He's definitely one of my favorite Bond villains. And he's got some just amazing speeches, like the one on the space station that is so chilling. And then these little, like, throwaway things that he says, like when Bond is attacked by the boa constrictor and then kills it with that needle dart, the poisonous needle thing that is in his pen. And then he gets dragged out by Jaws. And and then Drax comes in and says, Mr. Bond... You defy all my attempts to plan an amusing death for you. You're not a sportsman, Mr. Bond. Why did you break off the encounter with my pet python? I discovered he had a crush on me. Jaws. <laughs> yep. And it's just it's just hilarious. Yeah. He's he's both hilarious and, and totally evil. Yeah, and, absolutely. And just the the epitome of a narcissistic scientist he's got another one right after that where he bond is like he he's he's doing the classic bond villain thing where he explains his plan to to bond and he's you know bond is standing there dripping wet because he just got dragged out of the pool with the boa constrictor and then drax looks at jaws and says bond must be a bit chilly after his swim why don't you take him someplace where he, he will be guaranteed to be warm and he says yeah. <laughs> it with a completely straight face, you know, but it's just it's just hilarious the way he delivers that line. He, he is one of the better Bond villains. More yeah. memorable to me. Uh, yeah, definitely. And then we, we mustn't forget Jaws. Oh, man, he's great. He was in two Bond films. Yeah, the one right before this, right? And then this one. Let's, let's see, the one right before it. The Spy Who Loved yeah. Me? Is that yeah, the, he was yeah. in that, yeah. And then he was in this one, and... I remember him. He was in a film from 1974 called The Longest Yard with Burt Reynolds. Oh, yeah. He was one of the inmates, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, in real life, he was really a good author and, and wrote uh, poetry as well. Oh, that's cool. 
is a huge man. Well, this is his character is his character is why I think this movie is also a superhero movie because there's that scene when they're in Rio de Janeiro and they're up on the mountain and uh, Bond and Doctor Goodhead are going to come down off the mountain in the in the gondola, and then Jaws grabs the the steel cable but, and puts it between his teeth and bites down on it and breaks the steel cable with his teeth. Yeah. <laughs> That's not and easy then, to do. And then a little bit later, he's on top of the gondola next to the gondola where Bond and Dr. Goodhead are. And he just sort of casually jumps from one to the other like it's no big deal. And, I mean, that's like superhero stuff, right? Like, that's not that's not oh, yeah. humanly oh, yeah. possible. None of that is humanly possible. So, it's yeah. There was a lot of hu- uh, superhero stuff going on when they get to the last part of the movie on the space station. Oh, definitely. Well, and that and that's even more like science fiction stuff too, like yeah, the laser true. guns and the battle in space and the. I laughed so hard when uh, the Americans are sending up the space shuttle and Drax is like, "Deploy the laser cannon," and Bond looks at Doctor <laughs> Goodhead like, "Uh oh, what we got to stop this," and they figure out that how they can cause the jets to fire that are going to reverse the spin of the space station and then everybody goes flying through the space station and land and like hits the wall and the gravity stops and everybody starts floating around and it's just it's just again kind of ridiculous and funny but it serves the plot well and then he and and uh, dr goodhead take off after the three uh evil containers that have been ejected out of, uh, over the earth and yeah they, they, they're they're successful in in catching up with all of them. I mean, it's, it's, and, it, and it's like a video game. He, he's this. like, he's, he's crouched over the, the laser cannon that's mounted in the space shuttle and they're flying through the atmosphere. And the, the bottom of the space shuttle is heating up and fires going everywhere. And he, and he, and he just gets the shot off at the last second. It's getting hot. Can't be helped. I'm coming in at a steeper angle than I should in order to catch that last glow. I can't hold this course much longer. We'll break up at 200,000 feet. Just a few seconds more. Automatic firing system negative. Must be the heat. Switching the manual. Last chance. Steady. <laughs> and just 
destroys the canister. And, but right before that, another thing I really like about this movie is the is the arc that Jaws goes through because at the beginning he's just this. He's basically like a monster, like an evil yeah. monster, almost like a Frankenstein's monster. And and by the end of it, he's he's met this woman and fallen in love and decides to turn on Drax and fight for the good fight with Bond and then sacrifices himself with his his love interest at the end. And But he and his girlfriend get in that escape pod. And I remember a line near the end of the movie where this guy is coming over the radio saying that they found two people. They need to do a Jaws spin-off movie with him and, and his love interest. <laughs> <laughs> I love the look on his face when he finally realized that he was not going to be chosen by Drax to be one of these people to yeah. repopulate the Earth. Because yeah. the, the, another scene that just cracked me up, it, they show all these couples on this on this each space shuttle. <laughs> and yeah. I swear, they, they all look... Like they've been hypnotized, and 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 they're just—it just doesn't. It look looks like real. they just found all these people on the beach in Southern California. You know, they're like a bunch of surfer right. people, <laughs> and they all look like clones of one another. And they're all going to. So there's six shuttles, and I figured there were probably forty people per shuttle. So he was going to put like say two to three hundred people or more on this on this space station thing and have them have children and then they were going to all come back to the earth and I'm like this is really <laughs> this guy is beyond being a nut job <laughs> but he almost got away with it too like he actually built the space station and had all these shuttles and all these people and man bond got there just in time i i i laughed again too when they're at the amazon base uh, you know under the inca temple i think and uh, Bond and Dr. Goodhead are realizing that they need to get on one of the space shuttles. So they just knock out a couple drivers of one of these little electric vehicles. And then they just casually walk onto the space shuttle and get into the captain's chairs. Yeah. Like and it's no big go. deal. Nobody nobody checks their credentials or anything. It's just like, okay, we're going to go to space now. It all happens within <laughs> about 30 seconds. <laughs> There's, they had a serious breakdown in security. <laughs> yeah. The, the mad scientist part of, of Drax reminds me of Claude Rains, the mad scientist in The Invisible Man, when he just yeah. becomes possessed yeah. by what he wants to do, and, and Drax is just totally possessed. And even the one-liner as Bond sends him out into space. At least I shall have the pleasure of putting you out of my misery. <laughs> Desolated, Mr. Bond. Heartbroken, Mr. Drax. Allow me. Take a giant step for mankind. <laughs> That's a good one. He's he. I'm 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 I just there's so many you know. This this movie takes us all over the globe. We're we're flying over the Atlantic. Well, we, yeah, we fly over the Atlantic. Then we're uh, with Bond on this private jet, and we I don't know where they are. Someplace in like southeast southwest United States, I think. And then 
everybody on the plane turns on him. Like, I don't know what he was doing or who these people were, but they all try to kill him. And then Jaws is on the plane, too. And they, they jump out of the plane without parachute, without a parachute. Well, Bond does. Well, he, is he thrown out of the plane? I think Jaws throws him out of the plane. I think Jaws pushes him out, I think. Yeah. But then he, of course, is able to survive that by taking a parachute off another off the pilot. And then Jaws, doesn't his parachute doesn't work, and then he just lands on a giant circus tent and, <laughs> is, and survives. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was, that was a superhero. Yeah, for sure. And then we go back to uh, headquarters uh, for MI6, and we see Miss Moneypenny, and uh, you know it's the classic. He walks in, throws his hat on the hat stand, the coat stand, and has a, some quips with Miss Moneypenny, and then we're with M. And, and you know it's just like okay, this is the Bond formula. You know, there's like some crazy opening, and then we go meet with M, and Q gives him some cool gadgets, mm-hmm. and then he's off on his mission. And they've really got the formula down at this point. And then they, they, he ends up in California, and then they're in Europe, and then he uh, ends up in Brazil, and then in space. And then the Amazon. No, don't forget, he goes to the Amazon. Oh, yeah, he goes to the Amazon. <laughs> they go to the Rio Carnival. Remember that carnival scene where, oh, where yeah. Jaws is is like going to bite into, was it Dr. <laughs> Good? No, it was, another, it was another Bond woman. It was another the, agent. Yeah. I forget her name. But Bond, uh, no. Bond again encounters Goodhead in Venice. Let's see, and then <clears throat> Bond finds evidence that Drax is moving his operation to Rio de Janeiro, and then he meets up with Doctor Goodhead in Rio. But they, this article doesn't have who that agent was that almost got her neck ripped out by Jaws. That was crazy. And and it's always so funny when when Bond and Jaws encounter each other. Bond is always like trying to punch him in the stomach or kick him between the legs. And there's always this metallic clanging sound. Like Jaws is like some kind of a robot or something. You know, (laughs) as I step back from the film and I'm thinking about the people that made this and the storyboards for it and all of the matte paintings and the special effects, it was, it was a, a, a miracle that they got it all pulled off. I, I just, it had a huge budget. It went way over its budget, but then it recouped that in about the first night of opening. 34 million was the, twice as much as the movie before it. Yeah. Yeah. I could see why, because of all the special effects. And then having that all hang together in a movie of any kind is, 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 a, is a creative, a masterpiece in that sense, just the the technical part of it. It is kind of a miracle this movie was made. I mean, it's 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 so over the top, and you know, I think I think in some ways it it sort of pushed the limit almost too far, and there was sort of a backlash against how far things were going with Bond, and and there was a there was a movement I think in later Bond movies to bring it a little bit more into like the realm of reality and not have it be quite so much of a superhero <laughs> film. I I agree, uh, and, but in some ways I feel like some of the later Daniel Craig movies are going more in this direction of just pushing things to like ridiculous heights, and he def he definitely feels more like a superhero in in the opening. I, I mentioned this in another episode, but the opening scene to Spectre, where this this huge amount of this city is destroyed, and he 
he's able to navigate all of that destruction and is running along a building while it's collapsing and ends up sitting in a couch, you know, that happened to be sitting there in, in this alleyway as the buildings crash down around him. And it's like, yeah, I mean, that's that's like superhero stuff. <laughs> it is. It, I, I'm trying to, th- I, I think some of the early uh, Bond films with, with Sean Connery were, were more like a spy thriller, like From Russia With Love, that, that makes it oh, a favorite definitely. line. Oh, definitely. And then in the middle part, uh, I sort of lost track of who it was. It may have been Anthony, or Timothy Dalton's character. There's, it's a little bit more spy movie oriented, not quite as many special effects. But it, it goes back and forth. I yeah, because then I'm thinking about the movies with um, Pierce Brosnan. And there was some crazy stuff in those movies. Oh yes, like, they really pushed the gadgets and they really pushed the supercars and the crazy stunts in those movies. And so, yeah, maybe it kind of got, it goes through the cycle where it's like, well, how how far can we push it and may, how crazy can we get? And then, oh, maybe that's a little too far. Let's dial it back. <laughs> yeah. Just to be one of the directors for this film would be both a, a huge blessing and, and a nightmare to try to pull it off. Gosh, I guess managing all this. Yeah, it feels like a threading a needle. You've really got to balance a lot of things. I feel like you could go one way or the other too far and, and have it turn out to be not good. I mean, because there are some Bond movies that are not as good as others. When we recorded the bonus episode for Patreon where we were talking about Bond, you and uh-huh. I couldn't remember if it was like he, that he likes his martini shaken, not stirred, or stirred, not shaken. And yes. there's a YouTube video that has a every single Bond movie where he says shaken, not stirred. And it goes on for like two and a half minutes. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> kind of interesting to watch how the visuals change through the movies and how the different actors delivered that line. And, and how it kind of just became such an integral part of, of his character to have that that drink and you just expect him to say that at some point during the movie there's so much there's so much in this film to try to put it into a linear plot we'd, we'd need another hour because uh, it's just all over the all over the globe i did read that uh i think in the late 70s steven spielberg offered to direct a film after he'd finished close encounters of the third third kind and i never could really find out much about what happened to that Oh wow, that would have been interesting. He went on to to his own huge successes uh, with Indiana Jones and so forth. But if you think about Indiana Jones in some ways, I mean, it could it kind of owes some debt to James Bond. I think that it may be a little bit more to the serials of the nineteen the nineteen thirty even the nineteen thirties series. Well, thirties and yeah, thirties, yeah. Uh, let's see, who have we forgotten that's memorable in this film? We've got the usual characters for M and Q and Miss Moneypenny. I thought that Dr. Goodhead was a character that was played well by Lois Childs. Um, she did a lot of films and TV work in these kinds of roles. Or they were sort of second line. Yeah, another thing I like about this movie is that it, it sort of recognizes how, in some ways, misogynistic Bond can be. Oh, there's a scene yes. in there's a scene in Venice where they're standing over a bridge and he's saying something kind of misogynistic and then she basically shuts him down so fast. Dr. Goodhead. I can only hope your presence here is a coincidence, Mr. Bond. I dislike being spied on. Well, then we all. 
You're staying with Daniele, aren't you? Yes. How did you know? Well, I'd like to keep abreast of things. May I ask what you're doing in Venice? I'm addressing a seminar of the European Space Commission. Well, heady stuff. But there again, I keep forgetting that you are more than just a very beautiful woman. If you're trying to be ingratiating, Mr. Bond, don't bother. I have more important things on my mind. Oh, that's what I'd like to talk to you about. Dinner this evening? This evening I'm giving my address. Well, then can you think of a reason why we don't have a drink afterwards? Not immediately, but I'm sure I shall. And there's another there's another scene when they first meet where Bond says, well, I didn't expect you to be a woman. And <laughs> she she has a great comeback to that. You'll find Dr. Goodhead first on the right. Oh, thank you for the ride. Call on me if you need anything. Yes, my name is Bond, James Bond. I'm looking for Dr. Goodhead. You just found her. A woman. Your powers of observation do you credit, Mr. Bond? James, to my friends. Holly Goodhead. Are you training to be an astronaut? I'm fully trained, on loan from NASA, the Space Administration. Well, Mr. Bond, I guess we'd better get started. You don't want to lose time as well as the space shuttle, do you? It's such a sign of the times, 1979. Uh, I feel like his reaction is pretty realistic. Um, yeah. It makes it hard for me to watch it in 2021 and, and put my mind back in that time period. But uh, I, I, I did it reasonably well. I, it makes it easier because she doesn't put up with that crap, you know. Like she's yeah. got a she's a good, strong character, and she knows her value, and she knows that she's just as smart or smarter than all these guys that are around her. And she, I mean, she knows how to fly a space shuttle. She's the one who's able to like dock the space shuttle on the space station, and she fights with laser guns at the end, just like all these guys. And so I really, really liked her character. I did have a, a slightly different question. Like when he fights in that museum of, of beautiful glassware that, that they destroy all this stuff, then they come, the M comes back with the minister, Ministry of Defense guy the next day, and it's all completely redone. Isn't that the same building? It's, it's, it's the same it's the room. Same. And it's like, and Drax I, I, guess, I guess he's got like a, a super cleanup crew that comes in and like picks all that stuff up and rebuilds the walls. And fortunately, Bond had snuck into that factory and stole some of the nerve gas earlier and yeah. sends it off to M. And M's like, oh, yeah, this stuff is bad news. Don't, you know, we got to stop this. So I, I was struck by how efficient Drax could be at some things and how poorly he did security. Was he even in Venice before that? How did he get to Venice so quick? Uh, no, I don't think so. He just <laughs> he just shows up. Well, you could get there by jet, but he had to have hundreds of people redoing that, and they they took full use of it. Let me tell you, <laughs> I, I give the I give the movie I think about an eight. I go yeah. back and forth. some of it's like a three or a four, and some of it's a ten. 
The yeah. highlight for me is uh, was that fight in the glass museum. Uh, the, the, that was so well done. I couldn't mm-hmm. tell it. I could not tell if it was a stunt double or Roger Moore. Yeah, there's so many great scenes in this movie. It's hard to pick one that's my favorite. Uh, but I think so. The the last 15 minutes when they're in space and they have the big space battle is is really memorable for me. <laughs> uh, and and I love the aesthetic of the Amazon base. It, it's so 1970s sci-fi, but but with uh, with a really big budget. You know, it's like they had all the money in the world. How can they really make this look cool? And they they really did. Um, so I would, yeah, I was kind of landing on an eight because um, there's parts of it that are, like you said, not not great, um, but there's some that are just outstanding. Well, while we were doing the ratings, I was thinking they covered every genre of film uh, except for a western, and then I said, no, wait a minute, he shows up, oh, and he's riding a he's riding a horse and he's dressed as a gaucho. That's right. He does. I forgot do about that. Western. So they yeah. covered that. Uh, musical? Is there any musical numbers in it of any kind? I don't uh, think there is. I don't think anybody. That sings. might have been the one genre that they that they that they decided. Well, maybe we can't maybe do a that scene hit the cutting floor. You know, they filmed it and they said, well, <laughs> having all of these guys and women in space singing. Maybe they could have been singing on the space shuttle on the way of like Kumbaya or something. Oh like yeah, that. those those clone people in the. Yeah. Didn't you find them? I mean, they all look the same. I did. I did appreciate that they weren't all white, though. There were some black people, and there was some, uh, I think, some Asian people in there. So, but they were mostly white, of course. But they, they just, I tell you, yeah, it's he had a it's, he had a, a quite a vision of the future. Jeez, it was a it, it was a Nazi genocide sort of Aryan race vision of the future where he wanted to just start over the entire earth population with these select group of people that he'd handpicked. Yeah. It's, it's just that's crazy it. when you think about that's that, it. you know, like that's the crux of the plot and that's just insane. Well, should I uh, mention our upcoming podcasts? Yeah. Well, if we can get ourselves straightened away on what those are, well, it helped that I wrote it down and then I found my list. Okay, good. My memory of it was all mixed up. So, our next podcast is scheduled to be A Touch of Evil, made in 1958 and then redone as a director's cut long after Orson Welles had died and uh, uh, redone in 1998. So we hope to, to, that's the one that we're able to review. And then we're going to do Crossfire from 1947, which is an, a, an excellent statement about anti-Semitism and murder. And then Paths of Glory from 1957, a Stanley Kubrick masterpiece with Kirk Douglas about uh, World War One and and some serious missteps that were carried out in that uh, era, and then the Spiral Staircase from 1946, and we picked the Spiral Staircase from 1946 because it's uh, directed by Robert Siadmark, who came to the U.S. from the Weimar Republic era of Germany to escape the German Nazi movement, and he had a long and successful career uh, in the U.S., and this is one of his first films. He may have also done Crossfire. I can't remember. I think that was Edward Dimitrik. But anyway, those are upcoming films. Then we have to move into some musicals and westerns. Maybe some comedies or something. (laughs) Except they're a little lighter. Although this this was kind of comedy, I would say. (laughs) 
<laughs> so. Yeah, no kidding. Well, when when you do our tally of like movies and what categories <sighs> and genres, you're gonna have a hard time with this one. Is it science fiction? Is it fantasy? Is it comedy? <laughs> Is it all of those? Maybe I yeah. should just count it one time for each category. Yeah, it's kind of a imagine unicorn. that. Imagine this film that we just reviewed in the hands of Mel Brooks. Oh, Wouldn't you mean Spaceballs? <laughs> No, well, I was thinking didn't, of didn't he uh, do Spaceballs? Directed, yeah, he did Spaceballs. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. He would have had a field day with Moonraker. He Mel Brooks should have done a Bond send up. <laughs> that would have been great. Done yeah. what? You broke up on me. Mel, Mel Brooks should have done a Bond send up movie. You know, like a spoof. <laughs> yes, like he did with Spaceballs. Yeah, totally. He just ran out of time, I guess. Okay. Well, that was our review of Moonraker. It's a fun movie with lots of flaws, but also lots of things that recommend it. And coming to you from North Bend, this is Matt. And here in Los Angeles, Bob, uh, hoping everybody has happy movie watching. James. I think it may be time to go home. Take me around the world one more time. Yeah.